around 550 BC. A Jewish prophet was living in the old city of Babylon over there in Mesopotamia. His name was Daniel and he wrote one of the most amazing prophecies in the history of, of the world. He spoke about the coming of a mighty prince whom he called the Messiah. And he said, Jerusalem would be destroyed and then there would come a decree saying that Jerusalem should be rebuilt. This prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem back there was also fulfilled. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and the prophecy about the restoration of that old city was also fulfilled because in 457 BC Artaxerxes Longjumanus made a decree that the temple in the city of Jerusalem should be completely restored. But Daniel the prophet said that from this time of restoration, from the decree which happened in 457 BC, there would be 483 years until the coming of the Messiah. If you add those 483 years to 457 BC, you come to the significant year of 27 AD. And in 27 AD, we are told in the book of Luke, Jesus Christ appeared as the Messiah right here in his own land. He came here to the land of Israel and started to preach in the very year 27 AD. What a remarkable fulfillment of the prophecy. Jesus came here to the city of Jerusalem and here he commenced his preaching and he did his work and uh, he worked around the streets of Jerusalem, around the streets of Israel, up there in Nazareth, right across Galilee for three and a half years. And then in 31 AD, he came here and was crucified according to the Word of God. You see, my friend, we believe in the Bible, not just because of blind faith, but because of the amazing evidence. The Word of God is shown to be true by the sure word of Bible prophecy. I say to you today as I stand here on the Mount of Olives, you can believe in God. You can believe in the Bible. You can believe in Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk to you today about Iraq. I'm going to tell you of my visit to Iraq and some of the amazing things that I saw in Iraq, some of the amazing things that happened to me. I'm also going to give you the history of Iraq, which is the oldest civilization on the face of the earth. American civilization, at least the United States, goes back two or three hundred years. This is a civilization that goes back 6,000 years. And then I'm going to show you what the Bible prophecies say, if anything, about Iraq. Would you please open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis 11 And verse 31, the Bible says, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldees to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Uh, Ur of the Chaldees and Haran are both in Iraq. The history of three great religions start in Iraq. 
That's the religion of the Jews, the Christians, the Muslims. It all starts in Iraq. The history of civilization just may end there also. If you come over here to Genesis chapter 2, 14 and 15, you read a very, very interesting story. Genesis 2, 14 and 15, and it describes the location of the Garden of Eden. Verse 14 says, The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, or Syria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. It appears that the Garden of Eden was in the locality of the land of Iraq. It appears also that it went over to uh, the Mediterranean Sea and down into the land of Egypt. But Iraq was a part of the Garden of Eden. Therefore, the history of the human race starts in Iraq. It may finish there. Let me tell you of my visit to Iraq because it's, a, it's an amazing story. Some time back, I was trying to get a visa to go to Iraq because I wanted to go down to Babylon and take pictures of Babylon. And I also wanted to go to, to Nineveh and to a place by the name of Nimrod or Kala in the north. And so I called our church office to see if they had had any contacts in that part of the world. I called the general conference uh, they tried to be helpful, but they had nothing they could do to help me to get to Iraq. But somebody said to me, why don't you call Harvard University because there is a certain professor there who's been working in Iraq and maybe he can get you a visa or recommend you to uh, the Iraqis. And so I called Harvard University and I talked to the professor of archaeology and even though he was very helpful to me, he said, I don't know if there's anything I can do because of the international tensions. But he said, there's a professor at the great Catholic University of Notre Dame. And if you call there, this man has got excellent contacts with the Iraqis. So I called him and he said, I'd like to help you. But he said, I can't do anything personally. What you should do is call the State Department, United States State Department in Washington. And he said to me, you're... I don't know if they can help you because nobody uh, has got too many good contacts at present with the Iraqis in Washington. So I called the State Department and uh, when you think of a vast bureaucracy, um, it's very, very difficult. Calling the State Department in Washington, it's, it's one chance in a sort of a million. And they put me through to the people who deal with the press because there they have an organization that cares for the press in various parts of the world. And they had some people who cared for the press who tried to get into Iraq. And they put me through to uh, a lady there and she said, the man you need to see is on vacation. And she said, what is more, you have no chance in the world of getting to Iraq because the State Department is not going to talk to the Iraqis about getting you a visa. They've got other things on their mind. I said, when should I call back? She said, he's on an extended vacation. <laughs> and so I said to her, what do you suggest? She said, I can make no suggestions. You can't get to Iraq. She said, just by um, way of idle curiosity, what is your name? And we'll write it down. 
And who, will be, who would go with you if you could go? Well, I said we have a cameraman from Texas. His name is Buddy. And I have, uh, so that sort of gives the game away, doesn't it? I said, there are another two people who will be coming with me, Jim and Joyce Neergaard. She said, would you spell the name Neergaard? I said, N-E-E-R-G-A-A-R-D-E, Jim and Joyce Neergaard. She said, "Um, what is your religion? I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. She said, Jim and Joyce near God will be going with you. I said, yes, if we get a visa, if you can recommend us or point us in the right direction. She said, I went to Lodi Academy in California with Jim and Joyce near God. That is one chance in 300 million. 300 million in North America, one chance in 300 million. She said, I used to be an Adventist Christian. She said, I've given it up. But she said, uh, I have a friend in the Iraqi embassy. And if you call him after I call him, maybe something can be done. So she called the Iraqi embassy in Washington. And a day later, I called the Iraqi embassy. He said, yes, I know the lady in the State Department. She is a dear friend of ours. And he said, we will be most pleased to issue you with visas to come as the special guests of the Iraqi government. This was remarkable. I was so grateful to these people because I got to know the Iraqis in the embassy a little. I sent them in a big box, a big cake to say thank you. I discovered later they'd called the bomb squad. And they had closed down the Iraqi embassy because they thought we were trying to blow them up. Which illustrates the tensions there. But it also tells you that God answers prayer. And as Jesus said, God can do the impossible. But let me tell you folks things. God cannot do the impossible with a heart that is so hard that refuses to obey God. And if you and I continue in stubbornness and in rebellion and refuse to obey God, don't expect that God is going to bless us. But God can do amazing things if we obey his name. So we traveled across to Iraq. I went into this great hotel overlooking the city. And the first thing I did was to open the shutters and get my cameraman to set up his camera on the balcony and do a pan of the city. Everything that we could see, we took pictures of. And a few hours later, actually it was shorter than that, there was a banging on the door, and I went to the door, and there was a fair portion of the Iraqi army. (laughs) Now, I will tell you, they were courtesy itself. They said to me, what are you doing? We have been taking pictures of you as you've been taking pictures of Saddam's palace. And that is very sensitive. Why are you taking pictures of Saddam's palace? I said, I did not notice his palace. So I was placed under house arrest for a day or two. Then they said, we want to take all of your video and we want to edit your video. Now being a little stubborn, 
I said, no, that will not be done. They said, yes, it will be done. I said, no, it will not be done. And then that night at 11 o'clock, the phone rang and they said, we're coming to get you. And we're going to take you for interrogation. So I got all the video, which was in a box. I held on to it. I called Jim Neargaard. And Jim and Joyce are courageous people. They are anything but wimps. They have courage. And Jim and Joyce came up to my room. And Jim said, where thou goest, I will go. And so we were taken by the Iraqi officials downtown, put in the back of a motor car, and driven through the back streets of Baghdad for an hour or so. And then we were taken to a government building and I was taken inside and I was interrogated and they said, all this can finish if you give us the video. And I said, no, I will not give you the video. They said, why not? I said, because we have a program and we are putting on a series of meetings in the Shrine Auditorium and this video is going to be shown. And if your people get to the video and wreck it, my purpose in coming here will be in vain. And so I called the Iraqi embassy and we called the American embassy. And uh, the Iraqis, I will emphasize, were very courteous to me. They did not touch me. They did not harm me. But after an hour or two of interrogation, they put me in a car and they sent me back to the hotel. But they said, you will not leave Iraq until you give us the video. And so the days went by and time was getting by and in the end I took the videotape and we got our team and we knelt around the videotape and we said, God, we put this into your hands. Please protect it. Don't let these people destroy the video that we have taken. Then we told the soldiers, you can come and take the video. And so they salamed us and they took the video. And when they brought it back, we wondered whether everything had been wiped out. But when we got to Jordan and looked at it, we had some equipment in Jordan when we looked at it, they had just taken out the sensitive pieces that concerned Saddam Hussein. God protected us there. He put his hands over us there. I've seen the protecting hand of God. I have felt the hand of God upon me. Then we went down to Nebuchadnezzar's summer palace. We went down to Babylon, which is south. Now let me bring you over here to the blackboard and give you an idea of where some of these countries are. And then I will tell you of the experience I had in Babylon. Here is the land of Egypt. Over there is Saudi Arabia. To the north is Jordan, Syria. There is Iraq. There is the land of Lebanon up here. And stuck in here is the little land of, of Israel. It's hard even to get it on the map. And this will be most likely the land of Palestine. And this is where all the fighting is going on at present. But over here, if you go south of Baghdad, this is the city of Baghdad. You go down south towards Kuwait, and I've been to Kuwait too, is the city of Babylon. I've been to Babylon on many occasions. It is the city of Nebuchadnezzar. It is the great city that is mentioned in the Bible. And because I love the Bible, and because I want people to believe the Bible, I've made it a career to, to investigate archaeological sites. And when I went down to Babylon, I wanted to see Nebuchadnezzar's summer palace, which is a great mound of, of rubble, and bricks, and stones, and broken statues. It must be, I have pictures of it, it must be more than 100 feet high, just the mound. And so we got permission from the Iraqi Department of Antiquities and we set out and went down to Babylon on a beautiful, beautiful crisp morning. 
Then we climbed up the mound of Babylon. I want you to visualize this. We have Jim and Joyce. Jim is carrying the camera. Buddy is carrying something else. And Joyce is carrying the makeup gear. And we have one or two Arabs with us in their Arab garb. And I've taken it upon myself to carry the tripod for the camera tripod. Not the tripod. Well, I did have the tripod too, but the tripod is covered by a big case. It looks like a bazooka. It's about this high. It's a big round thing. And it's black. So we went up the top of the mound, a little bit like Mr. Magoo. And we set up the camera on the top of the mound. Joyce was standing there and we set up the, the microphone system and everything. And we started to do a pan of the area of Babylon. We've got all this on videotape. We've probably got some of the only videotape in the world on these sites. And as I'm standing there giving a talk in Babylon, the sky is filled with helicopters, gunships, gunships. And several of them are circling around us. We wave to them. We say, these Iraqis are wonderfully gracious and friendly people. Uh, they, they're even escorting us down here. So we're taking, taking pictures, waving at these helicopters, gunships. And then another contingent of the Iraqi army comes puffing up the hill. I mean, really puffing, huffing and puffing. And a colonel comes up to us and he says, in English, what are you doing? We said to him, salam alaikum. He said to us, alaikum salam. Uh, then he said, what are you doing? We said, taking pictures. He said, what is that big black thing you had on your shoulder? I said, it's the case for the tripod. He said, I said, what is the problem? He said, you see down there on the road? You see down on the road, 100 yards from you? Yes. That you've just come down? You see all those cars coming down there? Yes. Well, there is Saddam Hussein. Now, we would not think of doing anything, but we could have stopped the Gulf War. I find it hard to understand with all the intelligence they have. And here we bungle into a spot and I'm walking around with a big tripod. Of course, we only wish those people well. Let me tell you something. I hate to see wars because the wars are not fought by the leaders. You don't see the leaders in there fighting, do you? It's the ordinary people. And if you met the ordinary Iraqi person, he's about the kindest and the most generous person you'll ever meet. Kind, generous, and loyal. And so down there in the summer palace, we saw the hand of God protecting us. But I saw something else that amazed me. I want you to come over here to Isaiah 13 and verse 19 and onwards. Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 19 and onwards. Isaiah chapter 13. And it's verse 19 and onwards, dear people. Okay, here's a prophecy about the city of Babylon. Verse 19 says, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, 
the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds. Jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand and her days will not be prolonged. Hard to believe this, I know. But when I was there struggling up the hill carrying the tripod and the case, as we went into uh, the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, I, you know, we, we were not looking for anything. We were there to get some pictures and we were not expecting this to happen. But as we were there, all of a sudden across our path came a little jackal. He ran out of one of Nebuchadnezzar's palaces, one of, one of the rooms in the palace, little jackal. Exactly as the prophecy said, the jackals would be there. I picked up some, uh, not rocks, but I picked up some bricks that I have at home in a, in a secure place. Picked them up there with the name Nebuchadnezzar actually written on them. Gives you goosebumps to see how the prophecy has come to pass. I want you folks to know something. You can believe in the Bible. You can believe in the prophecies. And when the prophecies say something is going to come to pass, you better believe it is going to happen. And so there I saw the hand of God. I saw the protecting hand of God. And uh, I also saw how the Bible prophecies had been fulfilled. While I was there, I also went north. This is up on the desert road. I went up to a city by the name of Mosul. Because outside Mosul, you have the old city of Nineveh. That was lost to the world for about 2,000 years until it was rediscovered by the great British archaeologist, Layard. This was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world, but the Bible said, the prophet Nahum said that the chariots would, would be in the streets, they'd be fighting, there'd be blood, and the city would be completely destroyed. It would just be wiped out. And the city was so lost to the world that when Alexander the Great came along 200 years later, he asked his soldiers, what is the meaning of these ruins? And nobody knew what it was. You know, America, I think, is interested in that part of the world for a number of reasons. And I don't think the least reason is that black stuff that comes out of the ground. Amazing thing, when I drove from Baghdad up to Mosul with Jim and Joyce and Buddy and some Arabs, <laughs> the Arab wouldn't turn the air conditioner on in the car, remember that? We stopped at a spot just for a little break. This is true, it's hard to believe. Got out of the car, left the bitumen road, walked over into the desert and felt something sticky. Looked down at my shoes and I was sinking down into the sand. You know what was there? Oil. Hmm. On the surface. Just walk around. It's, it's everywhere. Then flew down here to Kuwait. Had a great time in Kuwait and met some believers who believe in Jesus. Now to let you folks know some of the facts, um, these states are a mixed bag as far as freedoms are concerned. 
And the average Arab person is just a nice person. He's a hospitable person. But the person who is the terrorist is the person who really studies the Quran. And the more you study the Quran and the more faithful you are to the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, the more you'll be inclined towards terrorism. And so anyhow, I flew from Baghdad to Kuwait. And as the plane was coming in to land in Kuwait, this is just a little story and it's not a part of the sermon, but as the plane was coming in to land, I've had some amazing experiences. Let me tell you just a little story about Jim Neergaard before we go any further. Jim is just a great guy. He's a great minister. His wife's just a great person. They're great to travel with because they got courage. I appreciate people who got courage. Don't have a lot of time for wimps, you know. But um, these folks are not wimps. And as the plane is flying over Kuwait, all the Arabs are smoking like chimneys. And, and Jim gets up in the plane and he says, Hey, everybody, salam alaikum. They look at this foreigner, this American. Alaikum salam. He said, Don't you know that that smoking will kill you? Don't you know that tobacco is bad for your health? Then he goes around every Arab. They're all sitting there, the headgear, and he gets them all to put out their cigarettes. So they can't, you know, a lot of these people are pretty nice people, aren't they? But as the plane comes in, and another thing too that you need to know, I've had the privilege of preaching the gospel in our evangelism center here in Egypt and also in Jordan, uh, visited Syria, practically no religious liberty. In Saudi Arabia, they'll kill you if you're a Christian. They'll kill you here if you're a Christian. In Iraq, I've held a mini-series of evangelistic meetings in our church downtown Baghdad. So the believers there are, are, have got freedom to worship and to preach. And it's an amazing thing. You go past all these mosques and then you see a great big cross up against the sky. It's the Adventist church in Baghdad. And I preached there and I preached to the Arabs in our church in Baghdad. I just pray most earnestly that God is going to bless our great and our good president, George Bush. I pray that God is going to bless Brother George. You can say that about him because he believes in Jesus. I'm going to pray that God is going to bless him with wisdom to do what is right, Amen. not what is politically expedient. Amen. I like him lots as a man. Like his wife, I like the Chinese. I, I sort of think that they're honest, decent people. Now, you know, uh, a lot of people say you can't believe anything a politician says, and with some politicians, that's really true, sadly. I like to think he's an honest man. And I pray that God is going to bless him and that God is going to speak to his heart and he's going to do the right thing as far as Iraq and the world Amen. are concerned. But as we flew down here to Kuwait, as the plane was coming into land, I said to Jim, look at all those lakes there in the desert. Look at all the lakes in the desert. He said, there's no lakes here. He put his head, in. I was going to say he put his head out the window, but he looked out the window of the plane he said, it looks like lakes, but the water's sure dark, isn't it? As the plane was coming to land, you could look out the window and there are lakes filled with black oil. Maybe that's the reason the Western world has such a pastoral care for the Middle East. Who knows? Just an amazing story. 
I also had the privilege, while I was in Iraq, going up here to a place by the name of Kala, which is one of the greatest archaeological sites in the history of the world. Time magazine, a number of years ago, put out this article on the, the treasures, the golden treasures of Nimrod. I was the first foreigner, by the grace of God, to get there. Say this with just a little, a little joy. I had a Time magazine. And some of you folks may remember our pictures were published a full spread in the Los Angeles Times. But there this Iraqi archaeologist, just a real gentleman, his name is Mazahim, became my friend, showed me around, took me down into the tombs. We got all this in, on film. Took me down into the tombs and there he showed me the tomb of the wife of the great Sargon II. It's mentioned in the Bible. And also the daughter of the great Ashenasapal. A tremendous discovery. Saw the gold, saw all this exquisite jewelry. But when you go to these places, my friend, you're really going to the places where the prophets used to walk and you can have confidence in the Bible because what the Bible said about those places is absolutely true and the prophecies came to pass. I believe in the Bible. But once again today, I want to say to my friends who are watching in the Middle East, and we know we have people over there in Syria and Saudi Arabia who are watching this telecast, I want to say to you that I have found the Arab people to be some of the most hospitable, some of the most courteous, some of the most generous people in the world. I have I've eaten in your homes. I have eaten in the tents of the Bedouins. The history of Iraq, it goes back 6,000 years. It goes back to the days, they say civilization started there. The Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Then in the ninth century, they accepted the religion of the great prophet Muhammad. And they became Muslims. And from the 13th to the first, 13th century to the first part of the 20th century, uh, this part of the world, Iraq, was ruled by the Mongols, Turkoman Empire, the Persians, the Ottoman Empire, and it became a backward backwater. And during the First World War, because England was in interested in the oil, England took over that part of the world. Uh, she had all these great companies working there and she wanted the oil. And then in 1932, Iraq became an independent nation under King Faisal. After his death, there were a series of dictators. King Faisal II was killed in 1958. And then there came a time of confusion and uh, people who were ruling the country who were dictators. They're all dictators over in that part of the world. And then Saddam took over on Jul in July 1979. And then in 1980, he invaded Iran. And we say this, everybody knows it, with the backing of the United States of America. He went into Iran because he said, I'm going to take this country over. And the Americans were glad, we were all glad that he was going to take Iran over because of the situation with the hostages. You know, man certainly messes things up, doesn't he? You see, we supported the Shah, and the Shah was in Iran. We supported the Shah, and it, he was a dictator. And they used to torture people. 
And then he, the Shah was overthrown by the Ayatollah, oh, Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini. Okay, there you are, you're saying, thanks a lot. And this man, of course, was a bit like bin Laden, a right-wing Muslim fundamentalist. And then they took the hostages, the American hostages, and treated our people dreadfully. And so America got really mad with Iran. You see? And so America supported Iraq. And we gave to Saddam Hussein his tanks and his guns and the ability to make chemical weapons. Did you know that? Newsweek says it this week. We sold him the technology to make chemical weapons. And then he dropped chemical weapons on the Kurds. Can you ever forget the pictures of those poor little babies dying, the Kurds? You see, the Kurds are up here in the north of Iraq, and they're related to Iran. And when Saddam was fighting Iran and the Ayatollah Khomeini, when he was doing this, the Kurds were fighting him. So he hates the Kurds. Can I tell you folks something? People say, you know, what's the solution to the problem in the Middle East? There you got this new little state they hope's going to be Palestine, and there you got the Jewish state, and there you got all these people. What's, what, what can you do to help those people? I want to tell you, folks, there's only one thing that can help people, and that is the gospel of Jesus. Amen. Now, if people don't have the gospel of Jesus, you're not going to have anything. And if you don't really have the gospel of Jesus in your life, you're going to be fighting everybody and filled with, re with revenge. And that's the problem in the Middle East. Those people don't have the gospel of Jesus. In June 1981, Israel destroyed a nuclear reactor just outside Baghdad because Israel knew that they were going to make the bomb. Now, the war with Iran ended in the year 1988. Iraq lost 550,000 soldiers. Goodness. And then in 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And we know what happened there. The Americans with the rest of the world kicked him out. But ever since then, he's been brooding and waiting for revenge and I don't think it's uh, imaginary to believe that right now, whatever he says, he is making nuclear weapons. And he's ready for a fight. And chemical weapons. Just think, this used to be, my friend, the Garden of Eden. This used to be the area of the Garden of Eden. And that's where it is Today, he has turned the Garden of Eden into a hell. What do the prophecies say about Iraq? Well, this may surprise you. Come over here to Revelation 16, verse 12, because people are quoting this prophecy, but we'll see what it is saying. Revelation 16 and verse 12. Revelation 16 and verse 12. The Bible says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl, on the great river Euphrates, and as water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, people are saying, television evangelists, at least some of them are saying, hey, that represents the drying up of Iraq as a power and the drying up of the oil wells. 
It's not talking about that at all. What's it talking about? The book of Revelation is a book of symbols. And in the Old Testament, the city of Babylon was seated upon the river Euphrates. And when the river Euphrates was dried up by Cyrus the Great, Babylon was overthrown. In the New Testament, there is another Babylon. It's got nothing to do with Iraq. The modern Babylon is the great system of political, religious confusion that is in the world that is called the Antichrist. And the Bible says that this great system is supported by the peoples of the world. Look at Revelation 17, 15. Revelation 17 and verse 15. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits, that's Babylon, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The drying up of the river Euphrates is a symbolic expression that refers to the drying up of the peoples of the earth who have been supporting the Antichrist. So this prophecy is not talking about the oil. What does the Bible say about Saddam? It doesn't say a thing about him. But the prophets do paint a scenario that looks remarkably like our times. Now listen carefully to this. The prophecies do paint a scenario that looks remarkably like our times. Let me give you a little word of warning. On occasions you'll go to a church and you'll turn on television and a preacher will get up and he'll say something quite sensational. He'll say, don't you know that this war between Iran and Iraq Oh, the war of the Persian Gulf. Don't you know that was predicted in the Bible? Don't you know the Bible prophecies actually describe the destruction of the Twin Towers? No, that's not so. That's pure speculation. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. But the Bible prophets do paint a scenario that embraces what's going on in the Middle East. And that scenario looks awfully like our times. Come over here to Revelation 11. Revelation 11 and verse 15. Look at this chapter here. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of God is going to come again, friend. Verse 18 and 19, the nations were angry are they angry today? Goodness me. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great. Now say it with me. And for destroying those who destroy the earth. So Jesus is going to come when the nations have got weapons to destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within in his temple was seen the ark of his covenant and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. The Bible does describe weapons of mass destruction. There's no doubt about it. America stands for democracy and the best things in the world. You believe that, don't you? And the reason America became the greatest nation in the world was because America had her faith in the Bible. 
her faith in the Bible and her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This nation was founded as a nation that believed in the Bible and in Christ. That's our Puritan heritage. Don't let anybody tell you anything else. Don't let anybody tell you that the strength of America is found in having all the pagan religions in the world. That's not true. The strength of America is her Protestant pilgrim father heritage. Now that's politically incorrect, but the problem is with those who disagree with it, you're wrong. This is the truth. But these nations that we call the Bible lands are not the Bible lands anymore. This is where the Bible was written. But you know why these lands are not the Bible lands? Because these religions on the whole are intolerant religions. And they've closed down all the churches. I challenge anybody watching this program, if you don't believe this, go over there and have a look. How many Christian churches have you got in Saudi Arabia? You know how many? Zero. How many in Jordan? Yes, you got a few there. Because the government is more tolerant. How many in Syria? I don't know any. And you got a few down here in Egypt. And a few in Israel. But people say, but surely there you can go and run evangelistic campaigns. No, you can't. You can't run evangelistic campaigns in Israel. You'll go to jail. You can't go preaching Christ in Israel in a public hall. So across these lands, you do not have freedom of speech or freedom of religion on the whole. And you know why? Because the Bible is the basis of freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Not all countries are the same. And I want to tell my members of my church here, one of the biggest problems we've got here in the United States of America is we don't appreciate the blessings we have. We take them so lightly. We take the church of God so lightly, we almost spit in the face of the Lord Jesus. We don't take it seriously. And we're not, grat- we're not grateful. We don't have gratitude in these countries. Goodness me, when I went to Kuwait, I was met by, there by an Adventist Christian businessman. He said, I'm going to take you to our little building where we have church. But he said, if we get caught, we're in trouble. Took me to a house, and that's where they have church. Now, in these countries, you don't have the religion of Jesus. I want to tell you folks something. You may think it's bad in America. You get rid of the churches. You get rid of the preachers. You get rid of the evangelists. You get rid of the Christians. There's got to be more than road rage. You're going to have hell and desolation. And in these countries here, on the whole, you have poverty, And women are fourth-class citizens. And right here in Iraq, there is a man with the spirit of the unconverted Nebuchadnezzar. When you drive around Baghdad, you see great pictures. And there are two profiles. One is Saddam, and next to him is Nebuchadnezzar. 
He believes he's the new Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible says that in the last days, the nations are going to be angry and there's going to be the production of weapons of mass destruction. I want you to know that what we saw that the terrible abomination that occurred to innocent people in New York City and Washington, D.C., it's not over. It's going to happen. It's the start. The Bible says Jesus is going to come back when the nations are destroying the earth. And one of the worst scenarios that the White House is considering now is if the Americans and the British and a few others go in there, they may be met with weapons that are going to kill them by the tens of thousands, maybe the hundreds of thousands. Then where is it going to end? Where is it going to end? Is Israel going to sit quietly when she's got nuclear weapons and they're trying to drive her into the sea? The Bible draws a picture of our days. I just feel, it just burns me up inside to find that the church in North America and the church in Australia and the church in the Western world is so lackadaisical at this time. I just can't understand why we're not on fire for God. Would you come over here to Luke 21? Luke chapter 21, and here Jesus describes the last day. Verse 25 and onwards, there'll be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. There's going to be a time of terror for some, but a time of happy anticipation for others. Come over here to Revelation 9 and verse 13 and onwards. I believe we're living in these days. Revelation chapter 9, 13 and 18. 13 to 18. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million I heard their number. And so here it talks about a scene of great devastation. Verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths. Now we believe that this is a picture of demonic activity, but it is also a picture of overwhelming destruction in the last days. Come over here to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Michael, another name for Jesus, he who was like God, at that time, Michael, 
the great prince who protects your people will arise. There'll be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. There comes a great time of trouble, a time of distress, but deliverance. So I want you to know this beyond the storm clouds, the sun is shining. After the night comes the sunrise and beyond the mushroom cloud, there is the cloud that carries King Jesus back to this earth. The King is coming and the Garden of Eden will be restored. Come with me to Revelation 22, 12 to 14. Revelation 22 and verse 12 to 14. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. That's so important. That they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. amen. Please kneel as we pray. Now, Father, we're on our knees today in humility and in gratitude. We thank you for the clarity of the word of God. We thank you that this is true. We can trust the Bible. We thank you for the Christ who came down from heaven and died for our sins on the cross. Our Father, we can see that the prophecies are being fulfilled and the hour is late. But Lord, what's wrong with your people? Why are we so sleepy? Why are we so indolent? Why are we so careless? Why is there so little fire in the pulpit and so little fire in the hearts of the people? Oh God, visit your people and restore unto us your great salvation. Help us to realize that the church is called for such an hour as this, that the church is called to go into all the world and to evangelize. Speak to the hearts of our people in this church, Lord, who love the world more than they love you, who love their business more than they love the Christ who died for them, who love the things of this world so much that they give to Jesus an hour every Sabbath morning and they think that he should be glad to get it from them and they're being generous. Oh God, convert our hearts. Teach us to love you. Teach us to be obedient to you. Teach us to get out of bed on Sabbath morning and come to church on time. Why, Lord, if we were going to meet with the President of the United States, we'd be half an hour early, we'd be all there polished up, ready to go. 
And when we come to you, we come late. We don't care about you, Lord, because basically we don't love you a lot. We love ourselves more than we love you. Oh God, speak to our hearts and convert us. Put a fire in our souls. Help us not to be mad because we've heard the word of God plainly spoken today. Help us instead to accept the word that comes from the mouth of your voice, from your, from your word. And help us to be obedient to your word. And may this be a church that is transformed for the glory of God. Amen. Be with all those wonderful Arab people in those countries. Generous, kind, good people. We know our Father that every, day, every, every week in Iraq... 5,000 little children die of starvation. We pray for the little children. We pray for the mums and the dads and the ordinary people who walk the streets of Baghdad and Mosul and these other cities. We pray that you'll give wisdom to George Bush, the president and the good president of this country. Give him wisdom, dear Father, not to be swept away or do anything that is wrong, but to do that which is right to protect America and to save as many lives as possible. Give him wisdom, Lord. And cover us all with the blood of Jesus. And may this be a transformed church. And next week when Steve gets up, Father, to ask the people to participate in evangelism, may he not need to come like a beggar. But may the people be responsive. And those who are not responsive now, Lord, strike them down by your spirit and convert them. And may they not sleep tonight until they feel a burden for souls and a willingness and a joy to be involved. So we worship you and bless you and thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we're saved by grace because we couldn't make it any other way. Cover us with the grace of God and grant us eternal salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.